0: For those of you who were here last week on Monday, which was the celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King's birth, talk some about freedom and both the freedom inwardly and then the freedom, um, the expression of that freedom in the world around us in service and caring for um, that which needs our attention, our love and our compassion. This evening I'd like to turn back more toward a meditative or inward reflection. When I first went to practice in the forest monasteries of Thailand, my teacher Ajahn Chah described meditation in a very simple way. He said, it's like there's a little cabin which has... Six doors and windows. And what I ask you to do is take one chair or one cushion and place it in the center of that room, that little hut, and open the doors and windows, and everything in the world will come and visit you. And your only task is to stay in the seat and not get up. And everything you need to learn of wisdom and compassion will grow out of that simple practice which he called taking the one seat. And when we begin to meditate and we sit erect, we sit halfway between heaven and earth and take our seat in this human body and open our senses in this practice of mindfulness or awareness of eyes and ears and nose and tongue and body and mind in order to awaken to know what this life is. So we sit, as the Buddha did, under our tree of enlightenment. Now when the Buddha began to teach, he was challenged by various visiting yogis and ascetics, saying, um, you're a kind of lazy fellow, because we don't wear robes, we only wear a tiny little loincloth. You know, or we eat only a tiny bit of food, or we sit on beds of nails, or we do all these wild austerities that are done by yogis to this day in India. And here you are, you go out every day and people will feed you, and you wear robes to shelter your body, and you're really a lazy monk. You're not a Buddha at all, or something to that effect. And in response to this, as the story is written anyway, the Buddha would sit there and utter what he called a lion's roar, and say, I sat under the tree of enlightenment, and Mara, who is the kind of Indian incarnation, the god of um, destruction and temptation and evil of all kinds, Mara challenged me with every possible army and temptation, and I sat unmoving on that spot. And prior to that, I had done every ascetic practice that there is to do in India, sitting on the banks of the Ganges, staring into the sun in the hottest day of the year, fasting so that I ate but one grain of rice a day so that when I went to touch my belly with my hand, I would feel my backbone. I did it all. And none of that struggle and fighting against myself worked. And finally, I have stopped struggling against a single thing And in all the 10,000 universes of heavens and hells, of beings of every form, of every kind of experience, this is not just your day-to-day emotional swings he's talking about, right? (laughs) But in all of that, I take this one seat in the center of it all and open my eyes to see clearly and open the heart of compassion. And this is where I rest, unmoving, unshakable. Now, many of us could do our own lion's roar or at least try a version of it because we've tried an awful lot ourselves. Money, travel, sex and drugs and rock and roll, materialism. I was just talking with Norman Fisher, the abbot, at Zen Center in San Francisco, just back from his trip to India. He'd never been to India before, and he said his return gave him a sense that he'd never had before, of how materialistic Western culture is. Because he said almost everyone I spoke with in India was more interested in God or the divine or some form of the spiritual practice or the other world, the invisible world in us, than just the world of things. But we've tried the things first, you know, and we're still trying them, aren't we? And then if it wasn't travel or money or whatever it happened to be, it was marriage and divorce or the gym and exercise or therapy or body work or meditation and different kinds of spiritual practice, you know, Hindu and Buddhist and Jewish and Christian and all of those things, um, all looking for something, some kind of fulfillment. I mean, and it comes to every, I mean, here we live in, those of you who live in Marin County, now we can sort of drive through and get our morning cappuccino and croissant. We don't even have to stop. You can get it delivered to the window of your car, right? Right. Someone gave me this yesterday from the health food store. Bodhi bar with a little picture of Buddha on it. Food for enlightenment, I don't know, you could try it. And then we get the idea, well, maybe we haven't still done enough. If we do more, if we do more time at the gym and more meditation and more therapy and more travel and so forth, and to get it faster, somehow we'll get it. Whatever it is that we're looking for. But it gets so fast, it's like Woody Allen, who said he took a course in speed reading, and then he read War and Peace. He said, it's about Russia. (laughs) So speed doesn't work, it's clear. We keep chasing. It is like the man in India, this story is told who went searching everywhere for the fulfillment of the heart, for that complete and utter fulfillment. And every place he went, although he found things that he liked, there was something wrong, something not enough, and then he'd move on to the next and the next. And finally one day, exhausted from all this travel, he was wandering through a beautiful green valley and saw this exquisite tree in the middle of this valley and sat underneath it, not knowing it was a magical tree. And he said, maybe this is the place. Maybe finally I can stop. I've tried so many things. And this place is so beautiful, I could be happy here, I think. But, he said, it would be awfully nice to have some dwelling here because it would get cold under the tree. And no sooner did he have that thought, than he turned around and there was this little cabin that appeared. Ah, how great but I need some food, I'm a little bit hungry. And as soon as the thought appeared, there came this wonderful table with all this food, how great, a banquet. This is definitely the place for me, but I should get lonely. I wish there were someone here to share it with. And out of the house walked this beautiful woman who said, oh, let me serve you the food, let me share this with you, we'll eat together. He said, this is great, you know. It's really kind of amazing and he ate and he admired the valley and the tree and the little cabin and everything was fine and then he began to think a little bit further and he said this is really strange I came here and every desire I have thought of it's appeared it's as if there's something magic about this tree or something living in this tree I wonder if there's some kind of spirit or demon that lives in this tree and sure enough a demon appeared <laughs> and then he thought oh I wonder if this is the kind of demon that will eat you. And sure enough, it did. And that's the end of the story. It says something about the mind, doesn't it? To get, to have, to become, to try to be something. What's the hurry? Where are we going? What are we trying to be? We go in circles, and then the mind fills with grasping and judgments and plans, and then we have to defend what we have so far, and we have, um, in that then, conflict with one another, and war, and racism, and addiction, and fantasies, and imaginings, and all of these things that come and go for us because we're struggling to get something, or be somewhere, or have something. And what's the remedy? Because it's really tiresome. The Buddha's remedy was to take the one seat in the center of it all, and just stop, and listen, and open. And I know for myself, when I started to teach meditation and started to work as a psychologist, I used to see the difficulties that people would have in meditation and in their lives as compulsion and greed and grasping or laziness or aggression or confusion and work with them all in different ways, skillfully, as best I could. But over the years, as I began to listen more deeply, listen with the heart, I discovered underneath all of those was one simple thing. We're all afraid. We're afraid of things and because we're afraid we ward things off when we get angry and defend ourselves or we grasp because we're afraid to just be with things the way they are. We need something more, we're empty. Our hearts are frightened to let go, to touch all the things that are here in this life. How many moments when we've been frightened to just be here, frightened to experience the river of life as it moves through us with its joys and its sorrows that make it up? How many moments when we've been too frightened to feel this changing dance that appears and disappears each day, out of which everything comes, this emptiness, fullness and emptiness again? Because even in a moment of sitting still, our breath, our feelings, our thoughts, perceptions, like those doors and windows in the room my teacher said to open, they appear and they disappear day and night. Nothing stays but for a moment, does it? We are this river. I remember Jocelyn King, the wonderful old um, Buddhist Uh, who I met, her husband was kind of well-known in the 1950s because he was a Buddhist scholar and went to Burma and wrote a number of books about Buddhist practice. And she went along with him. And while he was out kind of doing his scholarly research, she found a meditation teacher and just sat down and got enlightened. (laughs) So we would go to visit Jocelyn and Winston, and he'd talk about Buddhist temples and scholarship and sutras and things like that. I remember being in the kitchen with Jocelyn after lunch and she was washing the dishes and saying, I don't understand how people could prefer the quicksand of somethingness to the firm ground of emptiness. Mm-hmm. And then she'd wash another dish and just smile. You know, <laughs> to rest in the flow of things, including the dishes and the dishwater. Just let things come and go. To take the one seat... To rest in the reality of the present is to discover how to open the body, the heart, and mind to this unfolding that is our life. And it's really like learning to swim. I like to use this image. You know, when you were a child and you didn't know that the water would support you. I mean, you saw it and you heard it, but you'd get in it and you'd thrash around because it felt like you were going to drown. And then at one point, maybe somebody held your body a little bit or you floated there and let go for a moment, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I can float. I don't sink. This magic moment. Meditation is a bit like that. It's really learning to let go and swim or float that we can trust. We're held. Each moment arises and it holds us too. To open this way requires a balance. The yang side is a fearlessness, a strength. It's kind of the warrior quality, to be unafraid of what arises, even with its difficulties. And the yin side is surrender, receptivity, a kind of gentleness or tenderness that allows experience to come and be received. This is really the essence of the meditation that we practice here. It's called the practice of awareness or sacred attention. And it's the central practice in all of the Buddhist traditions. And it speaks about, the Buddha spoke about this capacity of awakening, being your birthright, each of us, here in any moment that we stop, open and listen. And he began with the simplest things in these foundations of awareness. To take the one seat and first open to this human body that we have, this amazing body. It's so weird to have a body. It really is, you know. I mean, look at it. It's got a little bit of fur in a few places. My fur is kind of thinning up here, but there it's what's left of it, you know. And one hole at the end into which we stuff dead plants and animals to kind of grind them up. And we move it around. You know, we fall on one foot, and then we fall the other direction. Catch yourself. That's how we ambulate. I mean, it's quite bizarre. It is. So you have it. You're stuck in it for a while. you got this body, right? And this breath. And so the Buddha said, All right, let's pay attention to this mystery of being alive. First, start with the fact of breathing. You begin to sit and notice. And the idea isn't to make some special breath, but to sit in the center and be aware with a sensitivity to the breath's own rhythms, short or long, soft or contracted, restricted or easy, fast or slow. Let the breath move as it will. And as you feel the breath, you begin to feel your own life move and breathe. The breath helps us to become present, helps us to know actually this moment's experience and to find a center or a calmness even in the midst of the excitement of life. There's an old story from India in which all the senses decided that they were going to kind of appoint a leader who was going to lead this life, you know. And so they were in some conversation or discussion about it. And Sight spoke up first and said, look at what I can do. Visualizations, imagination, images, castles, colors, fantastic. And Sound said, yes, but what about in the dark when you hear? Watch out, be careful. I can warn you of danger. I can play music even when you see nothing. There's incredible sounds of the night in the day. And then the nose and the tongue began to speak up. Yes, but those odors, smell that delicious, and the tongue, what you can taste, and then you get nourishment in the body. We should be in charge. Yes, everyone wanted to be in charge. And finally the breath said, how about me? And they said, oh no, you're just ordinary. There's nothing special about the breath. I mean, what do you do? Look at all these wonderful things and the breath began to pout a little bit, and walked away. (laughs) And as the breath walked away, the colors became dim and faded, and the sounds started to disappear. And the nose and tongue, which were so interested in beautiful smells and tastes, all of a sudden became hungry, desperate for one small thing, just a tiny uh, breath of air. And they said, come back, please, you come back, you are the center For all of us, thank you. (laughs) So by this simple practice of paying attention to the breath, this life breath, we begin to notice the flow of all of life, coming and going, expanding and contracting, joy and sorrow, pain and pleasure. And the same kind of attention then extends to the body. We sit and it begins to open the tensions we carry show themselves, the pains, the patterns of holding. You get quiet and they begin to reveal themselves, the armor that we hold. And usually we touch it with aversion. Oh, I gotta get rid of this, a little more body work, back to the gym, more working out, more, you know, whatever it is. And so your meditation becomes like a project. I'll lower my shoulder and I'll stretch my hip and deepen my breath and kind of tone my muscles, you know, and pretty soon it's gone the real meditation. Instead, what's asked is to sit and let the body open in its own way, which it will, to reveal itself, to re-inhabit the body, not by trying to fix it, but by listening deeply with the heart and the mind. And out of that, what needs to be healed will show itself. And what needs to be released will release. Maybe it'll get stronger and hurt more for a while, but if you touch it with kindness and make a spacious, open attention, it too will do its dance and release. The deepest healing doesn't come from our ideas of what needs to be healed. It comes from an organic opening of our being. To be with the body brings wisdom. The poet Eduardo Galliano wrote the church says the body is a sin, science says the body is a machine, advertising says the body is a business, the body says I am a fiesta, (laughs) to pay attention and not react, and not try to change it, but to listen is what the body wants, as the breath does. And in that grows a natural and deep loving kindness for this very body. Or we sit, taking the one seat, and all these sensations and pains and pleasures and things come and go, and the breath moves, and then we look at the mind. My God... You know how it is. You sit and you say, quiet, please. Does it listen? It has a mind of its own. Right? It does what it wants. And what do you see? The wandering mind, the planning mind, the judging mind, the creative mind, the restless mind, the critical mind, the scattered mind, the delighted mind, every kind of mind. And it has thoughts about something and a little while later it thinks something different about the very same thing. It's like Henry Miller wrote. The situation reached the heights of the ridiculous when I realized one day that everything I had written about the man, I could well have written the opposite. The mind is phenomenal. And as we sit, it waits for the space of sitting and then it disgorges unfinished business, all the things that you haven't attended to, all the desires, all the fears. We have creativity attacks. You sit here and it says, do this, make that, write that, become that. If you believe it, you are in trouble. Okay, a story for you. It's actually kind of a joke, but it's a story as well. So it happened a couple of centuries ago, as usual or as periodic, that the Jews were in trouble again in Rome for whatever reason they were being accused of being troublemakers as Jews are so often accused and the people accusing them went to the Pope and said you have to get all the Jews out of the city of Rome. The Pope called their leaders and said the Jews will have to leave but the leaders pleaded and said let us have a conversation about this or even better yet a religious debate to see if we can stay. So the Pope agreed and the Jews picked Moshe this one man to be their spokesperson he went to see the Pope and he said yes I will have a religious dialogue with you however in my tradition the deepest religious dialogue is done in silence do you agree what could the Pope say all right I agree so the appointed time came here's the Pope and Moshe sitting opposite one another everyone is around watching at first the Pope held up three fingers And Moshe answered by holding up one. And then the Pope took his three fingers and circled them all around his head. And Moshe looked back and pointed down to the earth. And then the Pope took out the sacrament of the wine and the wafer, began to eat it. And Moshe took out an apple, began to eat that. And the Pope said, I give up, this man is too wise for me. The Jews can stay. So, afterward they all went back and the cardinals said, so what happened? And the Pope said, I raised three fingers to remind him of the holiness of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Blessed Spirit. And he raised one finger to say all of those have the source in the same God for Jews and Christians alike. And then I moved my hand around to say that this God is infinite and surrounds us everywhere. And he said, yes, even in this very spot is our God too, and the Jews and the Christians both should stay with him. And so I took out the wine and the wafer to remind him that we can be redeemed from our sins. But he pulled out an apple and said, even so, there is original sin not to be forgotten. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? Moshe meanwhile went back to the Jewish quarters. So they said, what was going on? And he said, the pope held up his fingers. He said the Jews would have to be cleared out of Rome in 3 days. I looked back at him and said, not one of us is leaving. He said, I'm going to clear this entire city of Jews. And I said, we're going to stay right where we are and pointed to the ground. And then, they said to him, he said, well, I don't know. He pulled out his lunch and I pulled out mine. (laughs) So you sit in meditation... And you see the mind. And it can do anything. And it will, with no pride. It tells every story. And the task in this one seat is to allow it to settle, not by trying to fix it or answer it or argue with it, but to notice the waves of thoughts and opinions and judgments as they come and go, and rest in the heart, rest in the space of awareness that sees that's just the mind, it's a thought factory. Keep spewing out thoughts. How interesting. You bow to it. This too. And then the emotions. The breath, the body, the mind. The emotions, another dimension of this practice of awareness. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. They color our days. The storms. The deep sorrows and loneliness. The feelings of regret the excitement, the love, the anger, the fear, the pleasure, and joy, the well-being, happiness, contentment, so many different emotions and moods, sleepy, sympathetic, sad, sober, spacious, silly, jealous, jovial, joyful, blissful, broken-hearted, disheartened, delighted, depressed, driven, ambitious, ambivalent, antagonistic, antsy, argumentative, Apathetic, apoplectic, amused, proud, pleased, prudish, embarrassed, humble, honored, fearful, frightened, greedy, grave, grateful, calm, concentrated, curious, claustrophobic, compassionate. 500 emotions. I stop at that point. And we begin to know each one and sense the habits. Some come in groups, some come more often than others. This is just the waves of this human sense of feeling. And we take the seat in the center. And we don't have to react to every storm and believe every emotion as we don't have to believe every thought. To take the one seat is to become the space, the space of openness and of kindness or compassion which allows for it all. We sit, and it really doesn't matter so much what happens when you sit, that's not the point. But rather this establishment or this resting under your tree of enlightenment, like the Buddha, to just sit and say, oh, this too, to be present with what arises and touch it with the heart of kindness. The point of meditation isn't to make a specific experience or to battle against ourselves, And we've done that for so long. It's been such a struggle. Meditation's hard enough without that. Instead, it's to make our peace in the midst of all things. The Christian Desert Fathers, tell us, Master, what should we do when we see one of the brothers dozing during the sacred service? Should we pinch him to wake him up? Oh, said the old father, If I saw a brother sleeping, I would put his head on my knees and let him rest. The idea isn't to fight, but to find that place in the heart that's at rest with this earth and this human life.